thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. There comes a time in everyone's life, I believe, uh, when you have to make a decision. And the decision is so significant that it determines the rest of your life. Uh, you can talk about it any way you like, nailing your colors to the mast or whatever. And for me, I had a similar decision to make uh, over Passover just passed. Let me introduce myself. My name is Joseph. I grew up in a small town in Judea uh, named Arimathea, from which I take my name. I was uh, born into privilege and am now part of the Sanhedrin, which is the, the Jewish ruling council. There are 70 of us who sit upon this. Because I was born into wealth and privilege, I received some of the best education that you can receive from some of the best synagogue schools and some of the best rabbis. Uh, and uh, like most of my countrymen, I learned about the coming kingdom of God. I learned to expect and anticipate the coming of the Messiah. But for me, this quickly changed from some sort of a, a pious hope to a, a heartfelt desire. Uh, something changed in me, and, and I longed for the kingdom to come. I longed for, for the Messiah to come, and, and so I tried in everything that I did to be as ready for the kingdom as I could be. I was, I was scrupulous in my obedience to the law of Moses. I joined a, a group called the Pharisees, uh, whose very charter is about understanding the law of Moses, applying it to various situations, learning the traditions of the elders as they had interpreted the word, and, 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 and living it out. And so I applied myself to that. Uh, whenever I had opportunity, I gave generously to those in need. When I was uh, called upon to rule as part of the Sanhedrin, I tried to do so impartially with justice and with righteousness and with mercy. I studied the scriptures. I poured over them. I wanted to be ready when the Messiah would come. And yet when he did, it caught me completely off guard. I first heard the name of Jesus in association with the ministry of a man named John, John the Baptizer. He had a, a ministry in the Jordan Valley near Jerusalem, and thousands of people from all over the countryside came to see him. He was, he was a prophet, a prophet of God and powerful. And he preached of the coming kingdom and of the coming king. He spoke of one coming after him whose laces, whose, whose sandals he was not able, worthy to, to, to tie. He was a man who spoke of someone to come who would baptize not with water but with the Holy Spirit. And I and some of my colleagues went to, to see him, to hear him, to, to hear him preach. And oh, what a preacher. And yet when he looked at us, the religious elite, he uh, had some hard things to say. I don't know what you would expect someone to say, a prophet of the Lord, to speak to the religious leaders, the ones who protect the law of Moses. But it wasn't what I expected you brood of vipers, he yelled. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Bear fruit in accordance with repentance. I was a little taken aback, I have to say. But I was also cut to the very heart. And surely, if the kingdom was to come, if, if the Messiah was to appear, then, then we, the, the religious, ought to be ready. And I was cut to the heart, and I... I almost went forward, but I was with my fellow Sanhedrin members, and for fear of what they might think, I withheld. 
And the conversations that we had later in Jerusalem, I was silenced when they denunciated their denunciations against him. Nor did I rejoice when he was arrested and eventually executed by Herod. Shortly after that, we began to hear reports of one Jesus of Nazareth. And the reports were, they were weird. <laughs> I mean, we, we heard that he had no training, no, no formal education, that he was the son of a carpenter or possibly the son of a carpenter. There were some suspicious circumstances around his birth. Uh, but at the same time, he apparently preached with authority as he spoke about the coming kingdom of God, that he used uh, parables and, and, and comparisons that were just wonderfully simple and powerfully profound, that he left his, his audiences, his congregations, those who listened, just stunned at what he had to say. And on the other hand, he disobeyed the regulations around the Sabbath. Uh, he didn't have much time for the oral traditions and teachings of the elders or the priests or the religious leaders. There were suggestions of blasphemy and charges of trying to tear down the temple. And then again, he apparently could heal. Those who were paralyzed walked again. Those who were deaf could hear. Those who were possessed by demons were set free. What to make of this? On the one hand, it seemed that the Messiah must be near, and on the other hand, it seemed that it must be an imposter. So we waited. A little bit later on, a friend of mine, Nicodemus, who was also a member of the Sanhedrin, actually had an interview with Jesus. I went to see him one evening and spent the evening with him, and when we finally caught up uh, uh, several weeks later when he had returned to Jerusalem, we talked long into the night, and it was equally confusing. Jesus had said to him these words. He said, unless someone want, is, is, is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. What, what does that mean? Well, Nicodemus didn't know. I didn't know. We talked long into the night. Well, over the next several years, we had a number of occasions to, well, almost interact with Jesus. He would frequently come to the city, and every time he did, there was an uproar. So the first time, he came to Jerusalem, and in the holy city, he worked on the Sabbath. In Jerusalem. Of course, when I say worked, I mean he healed somebody. Now, according to the oral tradition of the elders, if someone's life is in danger, it's permissible to heal on the Sabbath. But if there's nothing, um, uh, nothing that will cause the loss of life, then you should just wait until the next day. Makes sense, doesn't it? And the man he healed with a word was a paralyzed man. He'd been paralyzed for 38 years. He wasn't going to get any better, and he certainly wasn't going to get any worse. He, he, he could have waited until the next day. It was down at the pool of Bethesda. I don't know if you know the area. It's a pool around which many who are sick and, and ill and paralyzed gather. There's bit of a superstition that an angel will stir the water and the first one in will be healed. This man had been there for 38 years. And I thought it was probably more than a coincidence that that was the same amount of time that the people of Israel spent wandering in the wilderness when they were disobedient to the will of God. Well, when Jesus was confronted about this, apparently, I wasn't there, but when he was confronted about his healing of this man on the Sabbath day, his response was this, my father is always at work and I too am still at work. 
and I was stunned. I was just, I mean, the work of God continues to this day, does it not? God doesn't, he doesn't take a break. Uh, He doesn't pause and and not do anything on, on the Sabbath day. Surely the work of God would entail healing and restoration and renewal, but what do we do with Jesus? Well, the next time he came into the city uh, was for the Feast of Tabernacles. My colleagues were on the lookout for him, and he arrived about halfway through the festival. And he arrived in the temple and began to teach the people. And again, I I didn't hear him, but the reports that came back was that he was amazing. He taught with an authority and an awareness of Scripture that they had never encountered before. And when he was asked where he got his teaching... Because the teaching uh, uh, that I am familiar with comes from long years of study. As as a Pharisee, we study not only the scriptures, but we also study the oral traditions, the ways in which the scriptures have been applied in various circumstances. And, And to gain mastery in even a small part of the law takes years of one's life. And this man had no formal training. Where did he receive this teaching? And again, his response, as recorded to me, was that he received the teaching from the one who sent him. And that the one who chooses to do the will of God would determine whether or not his teaching was from God or not. And I took that as a challenge. I wanted to do the will of God. It was was my heart's desire. And so I turned again to Scripture And and I reflected and I meditated on what Jesus was doing and what he was saying and what he was teaching and what I had heard and what I knew and what we were doing. And I began to realize that what Jesus was doing was more in line with the will of God than what we were. You might wonder, what did I have to be afraid of? To my shame, I I love the glory of men more than the glory of God. Being part of the Sanhedrin was very prestigious. I, I had audience with the imperial authorities. I met delegations of prominent Jewish families from all over the world. I was part of issuing decrees. I was part of the pastoral care of, of Jews near and far. And, and I loved that more than I loved God. I mean, there was also the possibility of being excommunicated. But that wasn't really what frightened me. Oh, and I had all my justifications that I could do more good from within if I just kind of waited Uh, that I didn't fully understand the situation. It required more study. We needed to to carefully consider what Jesus said and and weigh these claims up and then make a a very cautious decision. And that could wait. But they were just justifications. I found myself beginning to believe in Jesus, but unwilling and unable to speak out for him. Again, I don't know if you've been to Jerusalem, but uh, the Sanhedrin, when we gather together in council, we meet in uh, the Hall of Hewn Stones. Uh, if, if you ever get to the temple, it's on the north side, on the northern wall. And it kind of straddles uh, the courtyard. There's actually one door that comes into the temple precincts, and on the other side, a door that goes out. And it occurred to me that this was a metaphor for my life. Half in, half out. <laughs> 
and I couldn't decide. <laughs> and it only got worse. The next time Jesus came to the city, he healed a man, thankfully not on the Sabbath, but he healed a man who had been born blind. You don't do that. If you search the scriptures and you see the powerful, amazing works of God, you will never hear of anyone bringing sight to those who have been born blind. The only place where this is referred to, in fact, is in the prophet when it speaks of the one who is to come who will bring sight to the blind. And you know what we did? Do you know what we did? We hauled this man before us and tried to disprove the miracle. This poor man who had been a beggar his whole life, who had never been able to see, had never learned to read. We hauled him before us and questioned and re-questioned and re-questioned, trying to show that he had not been healed at all. We hauled his parents in front of us and we threatened them to throw them out of the synagogue. And Jesus' response when he heard was that the works that I do in my Father's name testify to who I am. And he was right. Who heals the blind? But God's Messiah. Who raises the dead? But God's Messiah. For shortly after, we heard that in Bethany, in front of hundreds of witnesses, a man dead for four days was called out of the tomb. Who does that? But the Messiah of God. And still, I could not bring myself to speak for him. And then came the events of Passover. Jesus had arrived in the city again. We had had an emergency meeting, I suppose you might call it, to try to determine what we should do about this troublesome prophet who had arrived. And it was decided in the midst of our deliberations that it was better for one man to die than for the entire nation to suffer which is a wonderful justification, isn't it? You see, we are under the authority of Rome, and if some Messiah, a pretender or otherwise, was to rise up and raise an army and potentially bring about revolt, the Roman authorities would crush it. And so for the good of the country, for the good of the nation, for the good of Jews here and abroad, we would kill this man. And while I did not consent to their decision, I also did not speak out. And so when one of his disciples betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver and he was brought, arrested to the high priest's house, I was there. For the first time, I saw the man who I had begun to trust as God's Messiah. They accused him and in the interests of being impartial and righteous, we cross-examined all of them and found that their testimonies didn't agree. But did that stop us? No. At one point he was asked about his teaching, about his disciples, about those who followed him. And he said words that I thought were directed right at me. He said, I have spoken about these things openly. 
I have done nothing in secret. I went outside. I wrapped my cloak and my thoughts around me and stood next to one of the charcoal fires. Conflicted and confronted by my inability to speak up for him, to speak uh, uh, about what could be. And my quiet reflection was shattered when a servant girl asked a question that I had been dreading. She said, surely you are this man's disciple. My heart started racing. My tongue went dry. I think my jaw must have dropped. But before I could respond, a man just next to me, Galilean by his accent, began to call down curses on himself that he had never heard of the man before. The rooster crowed, the man fled, suddenly there's an uproar in the house, and I went back in. Still shaken by the confrontation that wasn't, I find out that Jesus had in fact been condemned and had been taken to the governor's house. And so I followed and went before Pilate, as was my right, as a member of the Sanhedrin. And at first I thought maybe, thought maybe Pilate would have the courage that I did not. He knew that something was going on. He knew that this was more than just some religious spat. He knew that there was envy of Jesus amongst the religious leaders. He knew what was going on. But at the insistence of my colleagues and of the crowd, he handed Jesus over to be crucified. Almost immediately, the soldiers took him and dragged him off to Golgotha, just outside of the city. And they crucified him there. And I stood at a distance and I watched. I listened to the mockery of the religious leaders and the chief priests. I listened to the mockery of the crowds. And I watched as the soldiers mocked him. And I listened as the two thieves hung on either side of him. A mockery in itself mocked him. And I read the sign above his head that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And I saw the sun go dark. And I heard him cry out, it is finished, and I watched him die. And I thought this man truly was the Son of God. And at that point, perhaps too late, I made my decision. It was time to stand up for what I believed. So gathering my robes around me, I half walked, half ran back to Pilate's house, and I asked for an audience with the Roman governor. And because I'm a member of the aristocracy and a member of the ruling council, I was granted an audience. And there I asked for the body of Jesus. Nothing bolder than that. It was a bold request. Uh, Jesus had died as a traitor to the Roman authorities, and I was not close family. And word would get out of what I had done but I no longer cared. Well, the Lord was with me, and Pilate gave me the right to the body. And so I rushed back. I met Nicodemus, whom I had sent to buy spices. He had got 40 pounds of, uh, of, of, of myrrh and aloes that were crushed, uh, fit for a king, some clean linen strips to wrap the body. We went back to the cross and went to the soldiers, and after they had looked at the paperwork, they raised the ladder and a little too roughly for my liking, took down Jesus' body and gave it to us. 
Well, we washed his body and we wrapped his body in linen and we anointed it with the spices. And as it so happened, my family owns a burial plot in the cemetery close to Golgotha and looking over the Holy See. In fact, we had just hewn out a new grave. It was to be my own. Jesus would have been buried with common criminals in a common grave, but I thought I can do one better. And so I placed him in the tomb that had been prepared for me. And then Nicodemus and I rolled the large stone in front of the tomb. And as we turned, there was a, a group of women. I recognized them from uh, the, the crucifixion. And I walked towards them and I said, do not be afraid. I too am a disciple of Jesus. I'd said it. Granted, I'd said it to a group of women whose testimony would not be held valid in any court of law. But I'd said it. They asked for permission to come back the day after the Sabbath and further anoint the body, and I agreed. And after they had left and Nicodemus had returned to the city, I stayed for a moment at the tomb. I didn't understand what was happening. I believed that this man was indeed the Messiah, and yet there was... There were so many gaps in my knowledge. I, who had studied the scriptures, who, who knew the prophecies, who knew what it said about the Messiah, I couldn't square these things together. How this Messiah had, had died. And yet I, I still believed. Well, the next few days got even stranger. When I returned to the tomb the day after the Sabbath, it was to find the tomb had been opened. The body was gone. There were questions. How did my tomb end up not having the body that I had taken in it? There were rumors and suspicions and accusations. And some even say that he's alive. That he has come back from the dead. You know what? I believe them. I believe them. As I've been studying the scriptures since, I'm beginning to see that perhaps the Messiah must have suffered. I'm beginning to see that perhaps the Messiah is to be brought back to life. But either way, even if I never fully understand what has happened, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And I am never going to be silent about it again. I have found my voice. Have you found yours? I hope perhaps in, in hearing my story, in hearing my shame, in hearing my confusion, that you too might feel able to speak up for Jesus. To find some way to give voice to that which you believe, even if you don't fully understand it. Even if it doesn't all make sense, that you might stand up for what you believe. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face radiate with joy because of you. May he show you his favor, give you his grace. Amen.